Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rethinkers podcast. My name is Carolina Kehlin, and in this episode, I talk to my friend and environmental scientist, Laurence Chongro, about rethinking the role of international relations and global power dynamics regarding our food systems. Laurence tells us why she thinks that diversity is important to create a more resilient world and why sharing food across the globe can be a positive force. We also talk about coming to terms with the emotions of growing up in a warming world and why young people's voices matter in international relations. Laurence Chongro is very passionate about global climate justice. She has spent time studying and working abroad in Chile and Ghana and has worked at the permanent mission of Switzerland to the United Nations organizations in Rome. So I hope you will enjoy this episode. Do you want to start by telling us how you became interested in environmental issues? Um, yes. <laughs> so I think it was when I was very young. Actually, I, I was very sensitive to everything that had to do with uh, our planet or when I would see news on climate change or on biodiversity loss, I would become very with, with a lot of stress and fear. And I remember that my mom would sometimes change subjects so that I went too scared about the subject. So yeah, it came at a very young age and then it always like accompanied me this subject of our impact as a, a human beings on, on the natural environment if we decide to separate both. But uh, so I think it came like this. When I had to choose what to study, actually it's my mom also that told me, mm, actually you might be interested in environmental sciences. And I, and I thought that uh, she was right. So I studied environmental sciences and indeed it, I, I was very happy to do it. It was a great time to learn all these things about environment, uh, our societies, our economies. And I think a bit in a paradoxical way, I because I was a little bit angry against, I guess, our societies when I was a kid. And I would really have this bad uh, opinion on, <laughs> on human beings. And I think it's really during my, my studies that I begin to get interested in human beings and say, actually, we are the one that has to change. And why do we act in this way? And why? So it it really was my studies in environmental sciences that brought me also to human beings and yeah our psychology or yes. Do you feel like the climate movement has inspired you uh, in this regard as well? Since you mentioned uh, your interest in human beings, I think that's quite central. Like the anger or how do we deal with all of that? Uh, it's quite central to the climate movement as well. Actually, I began my studies before uh, Greta Thunberg came to the to the public uh, attention. So I think it was a very hard moment for me during my studies. I might, I think you might have experienced it as well, but I, I, I would see all these graphs and all these problems that we have and the public narratives or the public awareness on the subject was not there at all. So I would have, yeah, this fear of the future and of, of being like, why don't we talk m more about it? It's, It's very scary and there's an injustice uh, against uh, future generation, against other parts of the world as well. I think the climate movement came at a point, I think, at the end of my bachelor's and, uh, between, and, and, and mostly during my master's. And for me, it was a huge soulagement, uh, <laughs> a relief, because I really thought, ah, actually now the public narratives is becoming also the one that I had and that I was 
I could like I I was not not confirmed like I I was scared I was like saying I'm scared I I there's a lot of things that are not going well we have to do something and then I would have really for example my family saying you know like when we were in the 90s we were already saying that it was going to be difficult in the 2000s and then now we see that everything is is going as okay so you know like just chill <laughs> it's not so important and um, I would have really like not acknowledging my fear that I had and uh, and then with the climate crisis it was really a relief to have the public narratives or the public uh, awareness that that came to to say actually this is uh, le legitimate yeah the climate movement I think also like it adds to a public validation of uh, of the things we feel and it makes us feel like uh, it's justified to feel that way and there's many people who feel the same way yes <laughs> yeah helped a lot yeah. thank you Greta <laughs> yeah. yeah and I also think it changed the way we talk about it because I think a few years ago it was quite rare to hear people talk about climate change whereas now I think often you take the train and you hear people talking about these things and uh, I find it nice to see that it's being talked about more and more and I think that's that it's really important yes indeed and like a few days ago I just saw a post from the secretary general that was saying from the UN that was saying uh, we consider climate activists as extreme how you say radicals uh, etc but actually what is radical is not to do anything like this is extreme we have to to act and like this change of narratives also about people that were trying to get uh, public awareness about this it's really important i think in, in in the action that we need to take yeah i absolutely agree with you so I know that you're quite interested in food systems and uh, because you mentioned earlier how your interests in the environment kind of evolved into an interest in human beings as well. I think for me, like food is really interesting there because it kind of picks up uh, on both of those things. Um, could you maybe talk a bit about how you became interested uh, in food? For me, it's really at the interfaces between our societies and the natural world because we need to eat <laughs> every day. And it's really like in our direct relations with with the environment and with the i i don't want to make like a dichotomy between uh like the cultural and the natural but it's maybe easier to say to say it this way but this is the products that we eat that comes directly from the environment and so already from this perspective it's really interesting and then food systems are very like are places where every problems that we have as societies are really are there <laughs> and that we need to change and it's not as if we cannot begin to to not eat anymore so it's really like we have to <laughs> to eat and and so it's something that we have to do and in a way the the way we produce food is really symbolic also in in the way we treat or we have a relation with with the environment and with the natural world i believe that if we don't change it we will not be able to change how we treat or how we consider the natural environment and Yes, yeah, so it's all these symbolics and, and, and the places where these world meet. And also it has a huge social environment and health impacts the food system. And it's a, a huge leverage if we can change food systems. We I think it can spread really in how societies work, how they, they relate with the environment and how they relate with each other because it's a place where like also historically... It has always been like the elites exploiting people that were working with the soils and producing food. And so I think that this uh, dichotomy between people that 
will eat the food and the people that will produce food has to change because otherwise it's also a reproductive uh, exploitation in a way and 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 I think if we want to have a sustainable societies and more equal ones, we we have to change this relationship also with the people that produce food and acknowledge their their very important role in our societies. So what I pick up from there is that food for, to you is kind of like a mirror of our relationship in nature and also a mirror of how our society is structured. And maybe it seems like you hinted also like it's a bit like a mirror also between the relationships different countries may have uh, to each other regarding uh, social justice uh, and things like that. Do you maybe want to talk a bit about where international relations come into the picture here? Yes, so how I said before, I think there has been really this exploitation between the people that were producing the food and the people that were consuming the food. And also we have seen with colonialism that uh, that it was the same, but it began to have uh, geographical implications and, and also all these uh, human horrible trade. <laughs> so it was really uh, even stronger, this exploitation. And I think understanding this is really important to understand how Nowadays, food is produced and understand why it's uh, done in, in, in a certain way. International relations are very important because if we want to go towards something nicer <laughs> globally, we, we need to do it at an international level as well. There has been a lot of injustices in how, in for example, I don't know, trade agreements or that compelled some countries to produce certain kind of food and other that... W could like protect their markets if we want to change things it will have to get through international agreements at a point uh, or at least yes a way to reshape how these international relations operate it seems to me there is a growing critique of uh, globalization in the environmental movement and i think that also extends uh, to a critique in aspects of globalization in food systems and for me, regarding food, I think it's really interesting to remember that food products or edible products have been traded uh, near and far for centuries or uh, even millennia. Could you perhaps talk a little bit about this or about the history of uh, food exchange? Yes, yeah, so I think I'm not at all a specialist in, in this subject, but I think it has been one of the first items that have been traded. And it has also created bonds and and. Uh, peacefulness also uh, among communities that would maybe fight before and then say okay we actually we, we rely on each other for a certain product so we will make and trade agreements kind of and then it might have helped to create uh, nice exchanges between societies we have, for example the silk road or for example in the inca world also they had there was a lot of trade routes going from north to south what is in interesting to know also is that even though it was in the past, sometimes we used to romanticize, like, oh, it was all nice, etc. But there was also a lot of already problems with it. It was also an exploitation of some segments of societies. And we can see, for example, already, I don't remember when, but like, we can see that even these societies had impacts on the climate already, for example. There's a nice study on, on Inca period, how they pr would produce food and change land use impacts on the general climate of the region which is pretty impressive it's not only inca everywhere where there was a, a huge uh, land use do you and, know how uh, the change. climate changed i think more in the northern part they saw that the soil would get exhausted in a way so there was 
um, like depleted uh, dep- from nutrients. Yes, exactly. Anything. So they would uh, not safeguard a certain amount of humidity, etc. And then it had changes in the way the weather patterns. I don't remember exactly, but I think it became a little bit drier, uh, the climate uh, at this period. I, I, I don't remember exactly how it went, but it, they could relate to how the the use of uh, land was impacting already at this point uh, the, the climate. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And it's really interesting, this contrast, what you said. Uh, so on one hand, we see that uh, even past trading schemes have had environmental impacts. And then in the beginning, you mentioned that past trading schemes have sometimes also created a peace amongst cultures uh, who were... Uh, we're experiencing conflict kind of shows that food is uh, is so central to to our relationships uh, with each other as well uh, in addition to our relationship uh, with uh, with nature so i know that you've spent some time in uh, chile and ghana during uh, your studies and uh, while we were preparing uh, for the interview you've been telling me about some of the things you saw regarding kind of international relationships uh, around food with uh, certain situations in Chile and Canada. You maybe want to talk about uh, those examples? Yes, I think it was more than international relations. It's where I got, I got acquainted or with the injustice in the food system because, for example, in Chile, so it's a country that exports a lot of food. And um, actually, the food produced that would comply with the international standard, which means that there's not too many pesticides etc so it was mostly exported to the US for example so they have their standards and so the food that was exported to them would comply with these standards but then the one the food that would stay in the country actually would not comply mostly with uh, with these standards so they I don't know apples that have more pesticides than the recommended actually the US would agree to have or and and it was really difficult to yeah it's just like there was really the people were very angry also with the avocado trend i remember when i was there it was at, at this moment where avocados became very trendy and and the prices just like went up three times what they in would chile have been itself, in chile yeah. um what they were before which is really unjust because it's just people would consume avocados it's like part of their culture and now they would just be, were being exported. And at the same time, the, these avocados being exported had as consequences that more avocado f- uh, farmers would uh, would produce uh, avocado because they had such a really... Um, such a high market value. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it depleted water resources hugely in the country. There's a valley that actually had like depleted completely its water resource because of the avocado production and... So yeah, I think it's really linked with the history also of Chile where there has been this uh, dictatorship. During this dictatorship, there was an involvement that was not really official from the US and they indirectly or directly implemented a very liberal system. It's often said that Chile is like the case study of neoliberalism. And so everything was privatized, even water. You had this implication from the US that privatized everything and then you have water that is considered as a as a commodity in in chile and the, that is not protected or not managed in a they are trying to change it but and that's not. still the case today that water is still privatized yes but they i think uh they have a new uh, president and i think it it's on the way to to change i hope so it's all interlinked but then you have 
these avocados that are shipped to the US and that depletes the resources of the country and that doesn't really enrich the country in itself as a whole because you have huge inequalities. So, And I think in Ghana, what really surprised me when I was there, I, I, I did my master's thesis and so I had to read a lot of on the history of the country and of uh, food imports, exports. And your master thesis was related uh, to food? Yes, I was studying the tomato food system in Ghana. It's not really related to the tomato, this anecdote, but in the 60s or 80s, I think, the structural adjustment programs from the World Bank, which were programs to help and give loans to countries that needed financial help. And uh, the conditions of these loans was to get away from all trading barriers. So it means that you cannot protect your domestic market anymore. And um, by regulating import or export taxes and uh, exactly. So then to get these loans, they did it. Their market was flooded in, in one time with US rice that the US produces with high subsidies. So it means that it's artificially, it's a very low priced rice of course it's cheaper than the the rice that was produced at this time in Ghana because they had regions producing rice and so these regions producing rice just couldn't compete with the import of the US uh, rice which led to regions losing their their economic activity and they had to people losing their livelihood as uh, yes rice growers yeah exactly and and there you see really also an injustice that is really that's nice. How have these experiences changed your relationship with food? I consider food as having a huge history. And when I, when I eat food, I try to, to see. And it, it, it can be a really nice history also because, I mean, we wouldn't have so many nice things to eat if trade didn't happen because everything came from different regions, etc. I, I try to understand also the, yeah, the power dynamics or the, the implications or the structures behind what we eat, why do we eat the food we eat, etc. And I think I try also not to get too focused also on these things because you can get mad and <laughs> yeah, become a bit crazy with trying to understand what is best to eat and not to eat because it harms others and uh, trying to find my way in, in, in these. But I think I, I, I manage pretty well to try to eat local things principally. I try to not go too much into big groceries shop but at the same time I, I don't really mind if I go sometimes like I eat sometimes avocados not t- too many because I think of course we have an individual responsibility but it's not all on us as well mm. so not everything is on our shoulders as individuals and I think it's really nice what you said in the beginning that on one hand there's these negative aspects with the foods we consume regarding uh, international trading schemes but then on the other hand there's a uh, nice aspect in that as well like a uh, At the very beginning, you talked about the Silk Road. And I think that's sort of important to remember as well that in Europe, we've always had a lot of spices that we transported like historically from uh, the Far East. There's there's something very beautiful and nice about that as well in the way it combined cultures and uh, and sort of build a bridge across across continents. Yes, definitely. Yeah, last year I will talk maybe a little bit more about this later, but uh, we had a group of young people and we tried to find a common vision on food systems and how we want to see them in the future. And I think it was a central point that it's so nice, these food cultures and how actually it's an outcome of so many exchanges between cultures, etc. And it comes to something very unique to in each places. And it's 
we really need to embrace it and, and try to also not fear mixing cultures and 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 Yeah, or travel experiences. I think with traveling, like food is always so strange. You want to try uh, the food in different places, and it helps you to get uh, to get closer, to feel a bit closer to that culture. Yeah, yeah. definitely. With what you've explained regarding the situations of avocados in Chile and uh, rice in Ghana, I think global power dynamics seem to be a key word for me here. Could you briefly explain what the term power dynamics means for listeners who may not be very familiar with the concept? has been <laughs> explained in very different ways but I think mostly it's how one stakeholders or one group of stakeholders or one can influence uh, the behavior or the or the the action of another stakeholder or another group of stakeholders uh, in the examples of uh, Chile and Ghana could you explain what the power dynamics here could uh, could be like maybe that yes. helps to illustrate for listeners I would say that Both examples display how history created this power dynamic. So in both ways, we find uh, colonialism uh, as a root of these relationships. There's also the political structure, of course, for example, in Chile, the fact that has been a dictatorship, that during this dictatorship, there has been uh, some uh, economic system that was implemented. And we understand that who was behind it actually is also benefiting it afterwards. So years after having implemented an, a, a very neoliberal system uh, in Chile, the U.S. actually benefit from it by consuming their produce or selling rice, in getting their stocks of rice sold in, in Ghana, for example. And how can power dynamics influence uh, food systems from an environmental perspective? Um, so I think it's it's so huge. Actually, it's very... <laughs> so it's a very complex question, but I would say that uh, it can mean, for example, crop specialization in some places, for example, having huge monocultures of maize in some or so soy in some countries is actually uh, an outcome of power dynamics that are pretty strong, for example, land grabbing or etc. And um, so that means that in a place people were growing uh, local food and they were growing what they wanted. To yes. grow sort of in very simple terms and then through global influences, they start growing uh, certain crops that are maybe import or export uh, commodities. Yes, exactly. And actually, it's it's pretty a paradox in the food systems that the first that go hungry in general when there's a crisis are the ones that produce food. And it's one of the reasons is because it, they produce food to sell and not to for themselves. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a paradox, and also I just want like it's never all white and black. Also, I try to to show like the injustices, etc. But there's a lot of also when we think about the rice in Ghana, we can say ah, but actually the fact that there was lower rice prices could lead to the more population can afford this rice that come from the U.S. So I mean, it's never white and black, and I don't want to paint a picture that is like. This is bad. This is good because it's never like this in a in a system. And um, I think you ask how the power dynamics can influence also social the social dimension, and I think it can lead also to inequalities from a feminist perspective. There's a lot of studies on how what happens in the producer's household mm -hmm. uh, between it's like household level power dynamics. Yeah, for example, already in Switzerland, it's huge how many wives of food producers of farmers don't receive a salary because their job is not considered so they don't they don't have a social protection uh, as well and then it creates the fact that 
they are very 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 vulnerable if they want to 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 get a divorce or like it's it's just like not considered as as work uh, for example already yeah. yeah like the legislation is still more traditional in a world uh, yeah i think changing. i think they're trying in switzerland to better assess it and lead to a change in this in the fact that also it's farmers really rely on their wives to be able to produce and have a, a, a running farm so i think there there's incentives to to make it better but uh, still not there <laughs> i'd like to come back to rice here for a little bit because uh, also before when we were talking uh, before the interview you, you were telling me a bit about uh, rice in in the humanitarian aid context and uh, i found that a really fascinating uh, topic so maybe could you explain that as well to listeners Yes, like I, what role rice can play here in a, maybe a positive or a negative uh, way? Yes, uh, um, I will try. <laughs> I'm not a specialist either, so I don't. I don't want to say something uh, wrong. But at the beginning of humanitarian aid, I think a lot of uh, a strategy that would be to help uh, local people that were affected to from a shock would be to bring like huge, massive amounts of rice bags to a place and and and. And say, oh, we helped them, and etc. But it has been proven as very detrimental, also on the on the may maybe medium and and long term, and even short term, because sometimes it's not really no. Actually, it's really important to have food when there's a crisis for the the local population. But then it creates also dependencies, and you have also all the economies behind it. So some countries would benefit actually for sending their rice uh, bags to humanitarian contexts. And, um, and how would they benefit? So, for example, you have international institutions that where a country would um, pool uh, their resources to to help a, a humanitarian uh, situation. So they would get their rice bags paid in a way, or they would maybe give it. But then you can say I helped so much. I I don't know. There there's a recognition. I'm not super well acquainted in how it works exactly, but just the fact that. You bring huge like bags of rice in some places will not help the medium and long term because you create a dependency. The local uh, population will need this rice on a longer term, and sometimes it can also just block a situation from changing because you you just settle in a crisis situation that is not optimal for anyone. So yes. So it creates like a dynamic where people in a place might be very dependent on food products or rice coming in from outside instead of sort of focusing more attention on the building a new economy that might actually help people grow their own food or uh, yes exactly yeah, or create new livelihoods uh, yes to be empowered like in the in the long term yeah definitely what role do you think uh, the so-called Western world has in creating a more socially just uh, food system? That's a big thing in the climate movement as well, right? Kind of the global uh, global environmental justice or like what do we in the West with such a well-off uh, lifestyle, what do we own uh, the global South in terms of uh, repairing some of the damage that may, we may be doing as a society? Yeah, uh, it's a very, very complex question. I think I, I myself have not uh, found uh, the answer that fits me <laughs> in, in there. So just like maybe share some thought that I have on uh, about it. Um, I think we have a, a huge role to play in acknowledging all what happened and what is happening and saying that it's an unjust. So just like changing the dominant narrative that we have by acknowledging the history and the very exploitative history that 
has led to the system that we have right now. By acknowledging this history, we also say, okay, we had a responsibility in it. But I don't think focusing on it will lead to a solution. So I think it's like it's a step towards how we can evolve to a, a to more sustainable and, and, and equal world or global system. But I think once we have acknowledged it, we have to enter then in the discussion also with the local, yeah, local population already. The governments, if the governments uh, represent really the people uh, of the country, and create a vision and say, okay, we are all on this on this ship. Uh, where do we want to go? What are the trade-offs? What can you give me? What can I give you in in return? And and have this discussion in a. Ah, it's very utopical when I <laughs> when I'm saying it, but well, I think we need some utopical views. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, but I think. Already, like acknowledging our place in the system and our yes, the the, the huge um, impacts that Puya's consumption we have. For example, in Switzerland, it's estimated that seventy percent of the environmental impacts of the food we eat takes place abroad. So it means like it's huge. It's not to say, oh my God, we don't need to consume anymore, but just like acknowledging our responsibilities, also giving a voice to the rest of the world in a way. And I was pretty sad to see that we're not there yet. I mean. We had this responsible business initiative in Switzerland where we had to vote on it to, and it aimed at making businesses that are based in Switzerland uh, more uh, responsible towards the people that they employ or that they work with abroad. And the population voted no. And it, and, and I was, I don't know, I found that terrible, like really ethically. I, so I think there's a, a huge way to go to change the global narratives and, and try to, to bring awareness on these subjects more. I don't think we don't care at all because when we see at, when we look at consumers' behavior, we see that if they have the knowledge on certain products and the, the impacts that they have, they are willing to pay a little bit more or they are willing at least to consume the the product that is less detrimental to the environment or socially. But then there's also the price that gives wrong incentives in the food systems because often cheap food is produced in an environmentally and socially unfriendly way. Uh, so I think human beings are not bad, but it's just that we are animals that have weaknesses and uh, having social pressure on buying some stuff, the, the marketing, etc. We are vulnerable to it. So I think it's not that we, we are bad. We just like have our human conditions and we try to navigate our lives uh, best with all the information that we have, trying to be not a, a bad person, but at the same time, willing to to be part of a society that has to consume certain goods etc so mm. yes yeah, it's really interesting yeah. yeah i really liked how we talked about history as well how you said uh, it's important that we know our history and we know how our history has shaped uh, the world we live in today but uh, knowing about it is not enough like that we need to use that knowledge to evaluate our place or our role in it uh, and then to push forward uh, to action uh, that can create a better and more just uh, world for everyone. So I think that's uh, that's really beautiful and inspiring. Yeah, and I also really agree that knowledge uh, is really important. I think when people have knowledge, they're often willing to change, but people need to be informed that they need to be informed in uh, in good ways. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. And just to add, maybe also 
having a positive m manner of communicating. I think we have seen this last year that saying you're responsible, like change your behavior, you're doing a bad thing, consuming this good is not really effective. And uh, I think a more positive uh, communication mm -hmm. could uh, lead to a nicer change in behavior or more easily and not feeling this guilt always. Yeah. Yeah, like instead of sending the message out, oh, if you do uh, this type of action, you're a bad person, maybe sending out the message, if you do this other action, then you're doing something amazing uh, for other people. Yeah. And that's uh, more encouraging. Yeah. I feel like so far we've talked quite a lot about uh, the negative aspects or consequences of global food trading schemes. I think it would be really interesting to talk about uh, the more positive sides of it as well. And so regarding climate crisis, because uh, the magnitude uh, of the crisis is so huge, I think uh, it's important that we acknowledge that we unfortunately no longer live in a world in, we, in which we can solely focus on mitigating or avoiding the effects uh, of climate change, because things uh, will unfortunately change uh, in the future. Um, and I think resilience is a key word here. And I think for me, that means it's important to keep in mind that as our planet is heading into a future that will be much more regularly affected by crop failures due to droughts, storms and fires, etc. Like export or trading schemes actually have a big and important role here in creating a, a more resilient world for everyone. Could you maybe first explain what the terms resilience and mitigation are for listeners who are not so familiar Which the words? Because I think it's a really, really important uh, concept. So the term uh, resilience originally stemmed from the psychological field and it was a, a dynamic process of positive adaptation within a context of significant adversity. So when you have a, a situation that is a shock, uh, em emotional or kind of shock, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but how to react and whether you can adapt to it. So we have really this adaptation that was intrinsically linked to the to resilience. And then we had the ecological field that adopted the term to define how ecosystem can recover and uh, find again their stability after a disturbance. So again, it's really about adaptation and uh, coming back to a certain prior state. And then it went like coming back to a stable, uh, to a stable, stable yeah. state. Um, and then it came to socio-ecological systems, uh, more a field of research. So where you bring in also the human part. <laughs> it was also at the beginning really about adapting. When we talk about adaptation, it means yeah, exactly to to come back to a certain state, and it can be to the same state than before the disturbance. And when we talk about mitigation, it means that we can still decrease the shock that we are experiencing. So it means, for example, we can decrease our greenhouse gas emission and it will lead to less shocks, so we so less disturbances. So we need to do it. But at the same time, we, need, we know that uh, shocks will happen, so we need to be able to adapt as well. But also what is interesting to know is that it has also been criticized lately to only consider for adaptation in the resilience framework because actually we have systems that are either unsustainable or exploitative or unequal. And some scholars said, actually, why do we want to adapt? Why do we want this system to come back to the same equilibrium than before the shock? Let's consider shocks to be an opportunity to transform and come back to another state that is more equal, more sustainable. So adaption this way could mean either coming back to a, st a stable state as things were before or an opportunity to create a, a new kind of stable 
exactly. where we change uh, many many things that would have to change uh, for yes. a better. And I think it comes to your your question that was also on the positive side of globalization. I think, as as we said at the beginning, it trade also created bonds between communities, and I think. Uh, sometimes we forget that it can be nice to depend on each other, <laughs> only in a political way also, to say, ah, actually, I I should rather find a solution with my neighbor instead of uh, of creating a war, because actually I depend on, uh, on this kind of exchange that I have with him, her. <laughs> we could see lately with the war in Ukraine how this implication has to gas and oil, like the sanctions were difficult to take or where uh, some countries were doubting of being able to put a sanction on, on Russia because they depend actually on, on, on it. It can also be an interesting way of building peace, but also there's often power relations in these exchanges and these need to be considered. So there's o often one party that is more powerful in the exchange than the other as i said before nothing is really black or, or white to come back to the positive side of trades and the resiliency we we will face increasing shocks i think it's not possible to rely only on local food systems we need also to to say okay if you are affected by a huge shock and and you have a huge um territory that experienced crop failures what yeah, do we do because like, of a drought or floods or uh, yeah. fires i think yeah this this is this is a, a very important point that we, we will not be able to feed everyone by not exchanging and trading goods this is a, a rather positive traits of, of exchanges of, of trade yeah so we need to find a balance between local production schemes and also uh, sharing with each other across the globe Yes, and I think also <laughs> on the resilience uh, side, what we see is that uh, the more diverse a system is in its components, the more resilient it is. It comes from a very ecological, like uh, biodiversity studies, but we, when you have a, a system that has a lot of different species, you know that if uh, there's a shock coming, it has more probably, it's, it's all probabilities at the end, but it's more probable that it can uh, recover nicely <laughs> or, or better from a shock so i think we really need to consider this in our food systems to make it more diverse not only in, in the crops that we produce but also in how we exchange like instead of exchanging huge quantities from one side to the other maybe creating more uh, small exchanges from communities to communities i think in another podcast that you did you talked about decommodization of agricultural goods and i think this can lead also to stop making food as global com commodity that can be speculated on and, and etc but to consider it more like re really a, a right and a resource and a positive manner of exchanging nice things between communities i think that's very beautiful what you said regarding looking at our food system as something that should be diverse uh, and uh, letting ourselves be inspired by nature If we are, like, if everyone would be doing exactly the same thing, where every country would uh, handle things exactly the same way, we're only human beings. I think as human beings, we will make mistakes. And if we all do exactly the same thing, we'll all make the exact same mistakes. And that could, that could be quite bad. But if we do things very differently, like, we'll make lots of different mistakes. But there's a resilience towards that because other people have other ideas and other ways of doing things. And uh, that can be an inspiration. So yes, that's uh, really beautiful, yeah. And I, yeah, I think diversity is at all levels and also in the narrative that we have on our food system or on ourselves. Just generally, I we need more diverse narratives about our world and how we navigate. 
maybe here, since you talk about uh, diverse narratives, would be a good place to step into the next topic. I'm really curious as to what role you think uh, young people should have in politics or uh, what voice we should give uh, to young people. I think that really comes back to to a diverse world. I think uh, sometimes it seems like not every opinion is as represented uh, or every type of voice is as represented uh, as it could be. So do you have any inputs uh, here? I think... Uh... It's difficult because I worked uh, as an intern uh, in a UN environment for a year. And I I remember asking myself, like, why everyone is, like, pushing everywhere to have youth at the table? I, I, I know it's important, but I really ask myself, what is the added value? <laughs> so you as a young person were asking yourself, what, yes. what is my added value, essentially? <laughs> I was like, what is my added value in this discussion? I don't have the experience, etc. But... Then I, I, I thought, okay, we represent the future already. So we have the interest of a more sustainable, at least for a, a medium term, like our lives will be longer than the one of the people in that hold important position. So already this. And I think also in the attitude that we have as young people, where you see that when you're young, sometimes you, you have like children that are like, but why isn't it that we don't do it this way? And everyone's like yeah why is it actually that we don't do it this way and you get used to a certain structure or a certain certain society or a way of doing things uh, when you get older and i think it's the creativity or just like the freedom of mind that you have by not having been too used to things when you're young is is really important and to bring in the discussion and also just like the fact that people sometimes hold a position for 20 years i don't know like sometimes it's just too much like they have to change like it's too long because you become so used to the position you become so used to the structures i think we need to rethink also how we see jobs and how we can also become more uh, creative about it and adaptative in a way like to change structures etc and so i do think after all this reflection that it's important to bring <laughs> the voice of the young to the table uh, which is logical at, at the end uh Personally, it was really empowering in, in this position I had. Uh, I was an intern, but I, I was in a team that was very, very inclusive. And the, we were a few interns and we would be always asked what we thought about the situation. If we had to take a position at, as the unit, whether we would agree with it or whether what were our impressions on certain things, how we would do it. And it was so valuable like I think I really I felt that I was valued as a person and it gave me a lot of motivation to do my my job and also to to try to think about things and be creative get out of the box etc so I think definitely we have so much to win by putting young people at the table one point that I'm, I'm really fearing is that sometimes for example in the UN as in all jobs you know like people that are doing a certain job They have certain vocabulary, they have certain ways of doing things. If you go with economists, they will present a certain project in a way. And then if we go with other, I don't know, with environmental scientists, they will present the, the same project, but with a very different way of talking, of presenting stuff. And I think in the UN, you have a strong, there's like buzzwords that are used all the time. It's, there's a, a strong like identity, a UN identity, I think. And What I'm fearing is that the young people that are put to the table are the ones that could best adapt to this UN identity. 
which then is not really disruptive. But I think there's a, a lot of uh, young people that are very challenging structures that I that I knew also and that are great. So I'm very happy to see them and, and see their voice being put uh, at the table. And also the, the very big risk there is to have a tokenized voice at the end, just being like, oh yeah, we let the youth talk and we did it. We listened to, uh, to them, but actually they were not really listened to. And uh, it's a little bit the greenwashing of young voices or voices of indigenous people or yeah, vo voices of actually people that are normally not listened to. I think the, the risk is pretty high to get this tokenized uh, So like listening is important, but it's not enough just to listen. Like we need to listen and really listen and then move on from there. I think to incorporating the ideas, uh, yes, exactly. new ways of th doing things. I think if they are, if they or we are listened to, it's already a good thing because at least like there's an active listening to what uh, these groups say, uh, and then also there's uh, okay, what actions do we take after after having listened to this input? Do you have any ideas of uh, how how we could do that better in uh, taking action that's also based on on listening uh, to everyone's voice? Yeah, I think in the in how people are selected, for example, in a to to get a certain position, it could be that actually we give also leadership position to young people, even though they will maybe fail at some things, but maybe that they have a parent marin, I don't know, like a godfather, godmother in the in in the structure to help them with uh, with maybe the regular stuff, but. Really to to have confidence that they can also take leadership roles and and change things and and they can add value. Yes, put them into a position. Yes, I think this is important. And in general, I think it's not only for for young people, but for everyone, just to consider workers with all what they can bring to a certain team, with their creativity or pragmatism. Also, like really value each one for its own for their own strength. Because at the end, a young person can be very different to another young person. So maybe a young person can be very creative, another one can be very pragmatic. Some can take a lot of responsibility, another will maybe not be comfortable in this in in a in a position. And it, it's all about like valuing each other for their special uh, strength. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And saying like incorporating young people into politics. There's no one voice of young people. There's as many voices as there are young people. Just as uh, Yes, exactly. And everyone. I think this is also a point that is, is important that young people that are invited to tables, for example, in the UN, are often not the young people that comes from the most vulnerable communities because it's really difficult to get to. So I think it's really important for any kind of person that represents a group to consider the diversity in the group itself. And I think that's beautiful. And that kind of comes back to what you said before in the in letting ourselves be inspired by ecological systems maybe in the diversity in ecological systems to say well also in human systems in human political systems uh, diversity is maybe essential to to yes. resilience and uh, i so agree with yeah. <laughs> from my part i'm through with the the questions uh, i had and then i still have uh, three closing questions um so the first question is which three books or documentaries would you recommend to listeners so I would say the first one is The Memory We Could Be. It's a book from uh, Daniel Macmillan Oskar Boynik. I hope I pronounced it well. 
It's a very well-written book about our common past, present and future. We talked about narratives and changing them and acknowledging the history and how this history brought us to the place we are now. And what do we do now with this history to project ourselves in the future and go in the future in a in another way and in a way learn from our past. So it's a very beautiful book and I really recommend it. Then I would say another one that is, uh, I don't know if it's in English actually, but I think it might be. It's Afrotopia from Felwin Saar. It's a Senegalese writer and I think it's more about questions of North-South and how this has influenced the way we look at, for example, Africa and how we look at development or etc. And uh, it's very well written and, and interesting. It's also a change of narrative. Lastly, I would say the, the IPCC reports. <laughs> I think that's great. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, they are very important. And uh, and also this year, the ones that were issued also bring solutions and also bring the social aspects to climate change. And it's not only climate change, it's biodiversity loss, it's pollution. There's so many <laughs> problems that we are facing. And I think it's important that, that we know what is happening and we don't fear it and that we can have agency on, on uh, what is happening and they really help us take agency in, in the way that they frame solutions that we can have. Uh, and take. there are summaries for the reports. <laughs> yes, there are summaries that are very well written and, and You don't and need short. to read the whole 2,000 pages or whatever, whatever how long it is. <laughs> True, I haven't read them. Yeah, I, I, I read the summaries. <laughs> um The second question is, uh, what do you enjoy doing to take your mind off of things and to re-energize when you do feel overwhelmed by the climate crisis? Um, I like to go um, walk in, in the nature and camp also. And uh, I like to sing and uh, make a little bit of music. And uh, I also really enjoy writing. So I sometimes just write a few sentences on all my désespoir, yeah, all my fears and like put it out and then maybe the day after I'm like hmm, but the world is so beautiful like it's okay and uh, enjoy life and the world and I from when I was very small I, I was uh, amazed by everything so this is this helps a lot <laughs> remembering like to be amazed uh, about how beautiful or great our world is um, and my last question what inspires or motivates you the most to keep on working towards a more sustainable world Exactly this. Like life is so beautiful. Being amazed by uh, by the fact that uh, we we exist and we live and there's a beautiful planet and uh, it's kind of a little miracle or maybe just probability. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, those were my last questions. So thank you so much uh, for the interview, Laurence. I really appreciated our conversation and uh, you sharing your your ideas and thoughts with me. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Rethinkers podcast. You can visit the podcast website www.rethinkerspodcast.ch to see Laurence's reading recommendations. On the website, you'll also find the show notes. This is essentially a table of content for each episode. If you enjoy the podcast but don't have a full hour for listening to an episode, you can check out the show notes to find the chapters that interest you the most. To stay updated about the release of new episodes, you can follow the podcast on Instagram. On a final note, I would love to hear from you. 
whether it's to recommend a guest or a topic or just to provide any feedback or suggestions for improvement. You can contact me at carolina at rethinkerspodcast.ch. So thank you so much for listening and see you next time.